I remember a year ago when I flew in from Berkeley, California, where I currently reside, uh, to spend the holiday with my folks. I remember sitting right over in the pew, right over in that area there. And I remember hearing Father Tom, and it was uh, Father Kevin at the time, and they were preaching about Christmas Day, about what we celebrate this day, the incarnation, about God coming to earth as a human, and how it is that not so much, and how that's not so much a problem to be solved with our rational minds as it is a mystery to experience and live into. I remember thinking, how true is that? But isn't that true for the best things in life, the things that are the most satisfying, the things that are the most meaningful in life? I think about, for example, when parents are handed their child for the first time and they feel that baby in their arms. Or I think about couples who have been together for 25, 50, 75 years, and we know that marriage is not always a walk in the park, but after all of that time, they can still look into each other's eyes and say, I choose you. Or I think about the young teenager who I used to work with in Chicago, whose heart would go thump, 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 thump when they would tell me about the first time they fall in love, that first person that they've been crushing on walk into the room. Or when people like me or Sarah or Father Tom or Father Quinn or the sisters across the street, when they commit their whole life to public ministry in the church, these kinds of choices, these kinds of moments are not so much for the rational mind to comprehend and to analyze, so much as they are a mystery to be lived into and experienced. You don't explain away mystery. What we celebrate today is so big, so out of this world, so wild, so unthinkable, today just as it was 2,000 years ago. It's hard for us to wrap our minds around. And yet every now and then, I come across a story or an image that gives me just a little bit of a glimpse into what we celebrate today. Years ago, I came across a, a book written by uh, a surgeon. His name is Richard Seltzer. He died back in 2016. But in 1975, he wrote a book called Mortal Lessons, uh, Notes on the Art of Surgery. And now in this book, he tells about the story of, of a young woman, a patient of his, who comes in with uh, a tumor on her cheek. And to remove the tumor, Seltzer has to force, uh, has to cut a tiny but very important nerve in the side of her face. And as a result, this woman's face has a scar. Her face will remain ever droopy. Forever she will have a crooked smile. And in this particular story, Dr. Seltzer writes about visiting this young woman and her husband in the hospital room one night after surgery. And this is how Dr. Seltzer describes that visit that evening. I stand by the bed where a young woman lies, her face post-operative, her mouth twisted in palsy, clownish, a tiny twig of a facial nerve, the one to the muscles in her mouth had been severed. She will be thus from now on, as a surgeon, I had followed with religious fervor the curve of her flesh. I promise you that. Nevertheless, to remove the tumor from her cheek, I had to cut that little nerve. Her young husband is in the room. He stands on the opposite side of the bed, and together they seem to dwell in the evening lamplight, isolated from me, private. Who are they? I ask myself. He, 
with this woman, this wry mouth that I have made? Who are they who gaze at and touch each other so generously? The young woman speaks, hey doc, will my mouth always be like this, she asks. Yes, I say, it will. I had to cut the nerve. She nods and is silent. But the young man smiles. I like it, he says. It's kind of cute. And all at once, I know who he is. I understand and I lower my gaze. One is not bold in an encounter with God. Unmindful of my presence, he bends to kiss her crooked mouth. And I, so close, I can see how he twists his own lips to accommodate hers, to show her that their kiss still works. I remember the myths of the ancient gods, how they appeared as mortals. Then I remember the gospel, how truly the word became flesh. I hold my breath and let the wonder in. I will be with you, that is my promise. I will be with you forevermore. Trust in my love. And bring me all your cares, for I will be with you forevermore. That's what God sings to us at Christmas. You are my people, and I am your God. I gave you a promise to be with you always because I really love you. I really love you and I will be with you forevermore. I love that song. I think Karen taught me that song when I was about this high back at the Newman Center. And I love because it speaks about the promise of God who is always going to be with us. And isn't that a great story? I love that story. Those lines hit me every time. He bends to kiss her crooked mouth, twisting his own lips to accommodate hers, to show her that their kiss still works. Isn't that what the mystery of Christmas is all about? Isn't that a great image of what we celebrate today, this mystery, the incarnation? God sends Jesus, and even though we are trapped in darkness, even though we are in sin and error pining, our mouths are made crooked by suffering, isn't Jesus God's way of bending to kiss us? And the Word becomes flesh. Isn't that John the Evangelist's way of saying, God, out of utter love for us, twists his lips to accommodate to ours, to show us that we still have a future together? that God will always find a way to be with us, to bring us back to himself. This is the essence of Christmas, I suggest to you this morning. And that's why we gather today to remember that. And boy, do we need 
to remember that message. Because all you have to do is you have to scroll through TikTok or Instagram or turn on the TV, and you're going to see heartbreaking images of what's going on in Russia and the Ukraine and Israel and Gaza in Sudan and Guatemala, and I have to admit, I have no idea how exactly God is there, but I'll tell you this, that God is there working and laboring, that God is working to fulfill God's promise. And every time we acknowledge that, that God is right there in the midst of the fighting and the bloodshed, laboring in those situations, when we recognize that and we refuse to participate in the violence, space is made for God and God is born. All you have to do is look at the politics in our country. We are so divided. All you have to do is look at the radical individualism, the ravenous regime of consumerism in this country. I have no idea how we're going to get out of that. But I'll tell you this, God is right there in the midst of the negativity and the conflict. Every time a politician or a citizen refuses to dehumanize the other, when we put our egos aside, and insist on the dignity of every human person and give with a gospel generosity and admit that we depend on one another. A light shines in our darkness. We make space for God, and God is born. And to bring it a little closer to home, you know, I've talked to quite a few families this week, a lot of them with young families. They talk about how they kind of wish the holidays were over because there's a lot of work to be put into it. There's frustrations. You know, and God is right there in the midst of all that. You know, when we see these people, maybe someone at a holiday party that we don't really like, or someone says an unkind word to us, and we're tempted to respond in kind, but instead, we step back and we choose a better course, and we choose generosity and kindness and warmth and compassion, we create space, and God is born in that moment. And I know that there are people right here of all ages who are looking for meaning in their lives and a place to belong. There are people here who are facing terrible illness, grieving and agonizing loss. And every time we continue to lean on God's promise in those moments and trust that God is at work, that God will find a way to be with us and lead us to greater life, when we do that, we make space and God is born. And finally, brothers and sisters, if we say amen to all that, to God's promise and presence, then we have to be like Isaiah, we have to be like the author to the letter of the Hebrews in the first and second reading today. We are tasked to share the gift of that message to a dark and a broken world. Just like John the Baptist and John the Evangelist, we have to testify that God's light is still piercing through the darkness. Every time we do that, we make room for God to enter, to be born in the hearts and lives of others. This coming year, I don't know exactly how God is going to show up in your life, but God is there. Be on the lookout for that. But even more so, start looking for ways that you can participate in that promise through your everyday words and actions. It may begin as silent as a sunrise, soft as a whisper. It may come as strangely, as inconspicuously as a poor child born in your neighbor's stable. God may come as mysteriously hidden in a little bit of bread and a little bit of wine. God has made a promise, 
God is at work, God will always find a way. He bends to kiss her crooked mouth. And I'm so close, I can see how he twists his own lips to accommodate hers, to show her that their kiss still works. I remember the myths of the ancient gods, how they appeared as mortals. Then I remember the gospel, how truly the word became flesh. I hold my breath and let the wonder in. You have received me. Now go and spread my word. You are within me, and I am in you. Because I really love you. I really love you, and I will be with you forevermore. I will be with you, that is my promise. I will be with you forevermore. Trust in my love and bring me all your cares, for I will be with you forevermore.